Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. So they are going to hear more on the Supreme Court about, well, Section 230. And what Section 230 means to you, me, and we. How is it that Section 230 affects all of our lives? And this comes from the Communications Decency Act. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything. TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. The Communications Decency Act of 1996. So this starts as, if, if I remember it properly, this starts as a conversation about pornography. And how does one deal with pornography on, on the internet? What this developed into is really down to one code, one section which is known as Section 230. Very often this is described as the 26 words that created the internet. Picture the time before we get into whether this is right or wrong. It's 1996. No one knows anything. No one knows a single solitary thing. You know what they know? They know this sound. That was the internet, kids. 1996. You know how many flashbacks I just caused? There are car accidents happening all across your neighborhood because I played that. People who heard that sound and were like, wait, what's happening? What's happening? No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, and it gets worse than that. Welcome. You've got mail. Files done. Goodbye. That was the internet, kids. Porn took forever. (laughs) What? What? It, It didn't? Maybe where you lived, it was different. But these are the 26 words that they say created the the internet. This is section 230 that they're talking about. And if you look at it, here it is. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. And it was with that that you got through the idea of, well, look, people can post what they post. I'm not responsible for it. As long as I, whether that's Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, name name the, the company, if I'm not responsible for it, well, then I'm protected in what gets said, and therefore I'm able to grow a business. Conceptually, if you're going back to 1996, you get this. This makes a fine amount of sense. You, you are okay with this conversation taking place. But this has been utilized in a way when you see these platforms now getting into the idea of censorship, which, of course, they have. They can claim no from now to the end of time. They lie. Um, Well, are they abusing their Section 230 protections? This has been the conversation that they are abusing the protections by engaging in censorship. So therefore, they should not be entitled to those protections. 
well, that comes with its own series of issues and, and conversation pieces, which is if they don't have it, what do they do? How do they act? So what you see is the idea that, well, if you were to take away these protections, what you'd actually be doing is engaging in more censorship because these organizations would be so fearful of so many things on their platform that they could now be held guilty for, held liable for, that they simply won't allow those things on the platform. And why have it just be things? Why not just get rid of entire people, entire entities, because you can't trust the content they're going to put on your platform, you're responsible for it, you as a business can't have it, therefore it's over. Interesting take. It was the, the, the take yesterday as we were speaking uh, with Jake over there at, at the Heritage Foundation, who made this point, because there's a point to be made that if you take away the 230 protections, well, then you're going to have more censorship. His argument said, well, that's possible. But you take a look at how these companies have acted anyway towards specific groups. Haven't they already taken away those protections for people they disagree with? And you're like, okay, well, that's a pretty solid argument too. That's a pretty solid argument. So as I've been going through this, and of course they, they heard the, uh, the the testimony yesterday in the Supreme Court, and they're going to be hearing a different case today. Uh, Twitter versus Tanama is is that is that how I say? It? I I I don't know why I can't keep that in my head. Hold on, I'm looking up right now. Twitter versus T A A N A M E H is is that it? Oh, Tamna. Twitter versus Tamna, T-A-A-M-N-E-H. And, and both these cases that the Supreme Court has been dealing with uh, deal with uh, the concept of domestic terrorism. So they, they deal with the idea that you allowed this, this, uh, the, 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 these videos from ISIS, let's say, on your platform, and, and you didn't do anything about it, and therefore you spread this ideology, and there were these terrorist attacks, and the next thing you know, I have family members who are dead, and it's your fault. And with the case Google versus Gonzalez, I should say Gonzalez versus Google, which happened yesterday, it gets a little more specific because they're saying you allowed this stuff onto your platform. You claim you're not liable because of Section 230. Well, then your algorithm shared the content. Well, aren't you guilty for that? I mean, that's fascinating. So this is where we're at with, with Section 230. This is the conversation that's going forward, and this is what the Supreme Court is, is, is hearing. This is what they're listening to. Uh, I'm curious as to how all this is going to play out. But from what we hear, yesterday they seemed, according to SCOTUS blog, which is a great site, by the way, um, a little leery of jumping in because they see this as a conversation that should be left up to Congress. Congress created Section 230. Congress can change Section 230. Let Congress go about doing just that. Let them make the changes here. And they're not particularly wrong about that. The Supreme Court engages the constitutionality of a subject. They can't create the law. Can they um, go about slashing and stating, well, the protections work for the content, not for the algorithm? Well, this again plays into the tech's favor if you if you follow the, the guys from Heritage because they'll say, well, this is what they want anyway. So if you tell them they're fine, they'll say, okay, we're going to engage more censorship anyway so we don't have these problems anymore and we're going to eliminate this, that, and the other. And if you tell them they can't have uh, the protections because of the algorithms, well, okay, we're going to eliminate this, that, and the other. So either way, you get into a censorship kind of place that big tech can work with. 
because people will modify content in order to be seen and make their money and, and all these kinds of things. This is really some ugly stuff that's playing out. Some super duper, super duper, super ugly stuff that's playing out. And we should be, we should be aware of this. This is more than just a simple case. Win or lose, there's a real question about what happens to us and our ability to share. I will tell you what, when I first read this case and first really understood it, you know what came to mind? Man, this is good for talk radio. I I swear to you, it's bad for free speech. If you're going to see more censorship, no matter which way you twist and turn, and as I was playing it out, I'm like, radio becomes more important because where else are you going to be able to engage the conversations and share with people? It's fascinating to me that through all of this, through all of it, Talk radio has not only stayed and remained when you really thought like the end was near, it's grown. And I've said from the beginning, I can't believe that um, you haven't seen the Biden administration go after talk radio and the fairness doctrine. I'm surprised that hasn't happened yet, but it hasn't happened yet. Talk radio still matters. What the Supreme Court's going to do, I I don't know, but I'm watching. This is Tony Katz today. So the Indiana General Assembly, in all the things that they deal with, are of course dealing with things that I don't quite understand why they're dealing with them at all. There are things that they address that don't seem to make any sense to me, and then again, things that they don't address that I believe they should be addressing right away. This one is Senate Bill 343. There's a House bill, that's House Bill 1365, and that in and of itself Uh, Can you know, how do you follow it all? It says machine guns, House Bill 1365. And I'm like, wait, machine guns? Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Guy Relford joins us right now. He is a defense uh, attorney, a Second Amendment attorney. He's the host of the Gun Guy Show on 93.1 FM WIBC. On weekends, uh, he teaches uh, uh, firearms courses, proper use, defense, all sorts of things. Here's how it reads in the digest, which is basically the Cliff Notes version of a house bill. Machine guns revises for purposes of an enhancement in certain criminal offenses. A definition of machine gun provides that particular criminal offenses concerning machine guns shall not be construed to apply to persons possessing machine guns or other items not required to be registered in the National Firearms Registration and Transfer Record maintained by the Federal Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. And you're like, okay, I don't know what that means. But then there's Senate Bill 343. And then this is an entire conversation about marketplaces. And then you've got a conversation about how these people go about selling their product. Guy Relford, walk me through these two pieces of legislation and why in the world is the Indiana General Assembly concerning itself with machine guns when, well, that doesn't seem to be an issue? Yeah, I can tell you exactly, uh, Tony. And and it, it, it all, the machine gun bill 1365 really arises out of the uh, problem that various police departments around Indiana, particularly IMPD, uh, are seeing where they're finding uh, the handguns, typically Glocks, that have been converted to fire full auto. 
And once a once a gun's converted, and, and they're converted through what a lot of people, just the shorthand version, they call them Glock switches. And, and for a fairly cheap part, uh, you can install it in your Glock semi-automatic handgun, and suddenly you have a machine gun. You have a machine pistol. Well, if you have already converted that pistol into a machine gun using one of these switches, that's illegal. It's illegal under federal law. It's an unregistered machine gun. You're looking at 10 years in federal prison. And it's also illegal under Indiana law, which is illegal possession of a machine gun. So the authorities have their choice of what they want to do with you. The, the problem is that in Indiana law, at least the problem that they're ostensibly trying to fix is that the definition of machine gun today for purposes of the crime of illegal possession of a machine gun only would refer to the converted gun once it's converted. And what they're doing is they're finding, you know, people on the street with, with a pocket full of these switches in their pocket, just the switches. And they're selling them to their buddies. They're selling them to their buddies in the gangs or whatever to convert their guns into machine guns as well. And currently there's some inconsistencies. There's, there's a law in Indiana about transferring a machine gun. Well, that it would include these switches. That is a part useful only for converting a semi-automatic gun into a machine gun. The, the illegal transfer of a machi machine gun would include these parts, but the illegal possession uh, of a machine gun does not include just the part that's useful only con for converting a semi-automatic into an automatic. So they're reconciling those two parts of the Indiana code to make it illegal to just have the switches like it's currently illegal to okay. transfer them. Cause so because if, if you find somebody with a pocket full of them, but you don't catch them trying to sell them right now, that's not a violation of Indiana law. So this they, is also uh, reconciling. Let me take a Go second ahead. here. Let me, let me, damn, that is, that is a bit of madness. So this, as you see it, this legislation is about trying to clear the air on the concept of transfer. If you have this part, this widget, this doohickey, this thingamabob, that when attached to a, a, a Glock, which is a, a, a type of, of firearm, or maybe a, another type of, of firearm, it would allow it to go from semi-automatic, you have to pull the trigger each time to fire, to fully automatic, you hold the trigger down once, it keeps firing. It is a part, it is a doohickey, as I said. The issue yep. is we have legislation that deals with a already completed machine gun, fully automatic weapon or something that's yep. been modified but we have nothing specifically about the part and this is based on what impd is seeing we need to do something about the part that would allow them more opportunities to engage in charges exactly and and right now that part in and of itself is illegal under federal law because the federal definition of machine gun includes just the part that's useful only for the conversion to machine guns. So we're reconciling two different inconsistent parts. I say we, I have nothing to do with this bill. I haven't supported it. I haven't opposed it. I'm neutral on the bill, but what the, the, the authors, and there's some very pro 2A legislators that, that are on 1365. When you look at the names, what they're trying to do is they're trying to reconcile two inconsistent parts of Indiana law on what's a machine gun and what's not. Does it include just the doohickey or, or only the converted gun? And they're also reconciling Indiana law to federal law. Um, so among all those things, and, and for instance, when, when some people have come in and people have called me and said, this is anti-2A, we need to oppose it. And I haven't actively opposed it because what I've said is, tell me what would be illegal under this amendment of Indiana law that's not already illegal under federal law. And the answer is nothing. 
And and then for that reason, you can't really say it's a step back in terms of gun rights because we're not making something illegal that's otherwise legal because federal law already captures the part. Talking to Guy O'Relford, Second Amendment attorney. He is also the host of the Gun Guy Show, weekends on 93.1 FM WIBC in Indianapolis. RelfordLaw.com, R-E-L-F-O-R-D, RelfordLaw.com. He also heads up the 2A project, number two, letter A project, if you want to check that out. Um, So this gets a lot of attention. But you take a look at it and say, wait a second, we already have this, we already have that. All they're engaging in is clarification. It goes down the line of not everything is being created to go against your rights. But you often see pushback to these kinds of things. This is uh, government going too far. This is government trying to restrict uh, the, the, the Second Amendment. And your statement is this isn't a restriction of the Second Amendment. Well, we still have about a minute left. This is, in your view, normal legislation well it's it's reconciling two inconsistencies and and the one thing is is look you know i i was uh, obviously 180 degrees uh, uh opposed or uh, opposed by uh, a lot of law enforcement agencies over constitutional carry but you know i otherwise i've always considered myself to be pro law enforcement and and here that i've talked to a lot of cops who are saying and impd cops right here in indianapolis saying um guys we're seeing a lot of these glock switches we're finding them on people we need to put these people in jail before they sell them um and we can't do that under indiana law we have to be dependent on the feds i think that's legitimate um and for that reason i've been neutral on the legislation i'm certainly not supporting it um because technically it's quote unquote gun control but frankly it's not restricting anyone's rights that aren't already restricted under federal law and people could, I mean, if they actually wanted a machine gun, if they wanted a fully automatic weapon, there's a way to do that. And the, the forms that get filled out and the tax stamp and, and, and everything else. Do you, do you consider those kinds of things a violation of Second Amendment rights? Well, uh, you know, um, <laughs> the, the, we've, there's a lot of discussion about that because machine guns weren't, uh, quote unquote, uh, they were really banned. They were, as you just mentioned, they were dramatically restricted. But that wasn't until 1986. So under the new test by the Supreme Court, and I know we don't have much time, it text history and, tra- and tradition. I mean, you used to be able to buy a machine gun through a Sears catalog. So does the does longstanding text history and tradition of the Second Amendment include restrictions on machine guns? Very good argument to say it's not. I want to see where I can find an old Sears catalog where I could get a fully automatic where I can get a machine gun. <laughs> Like, send that to yeah. me immediately. Tony Katz on Twitter. I want to see that. That's awesome. By the way, I'm not opposed uh, to it. I believe the Second Amendment is the Second Amendment, and you should be allowed uh, to to purchase a firearm, and there should be uh, as little restriction as humanly possible. I think you're making a very interesting conversation about, about this uh, legislation in the state of Indiana because it's clarifying, and while some people yeah. could see it as restrictive, you see it as more of a cleaning up of an issue that already exists. Now, if you want to go after the larger issue, you could go after the larger issue if you wanted to. That's exactly how I approach it. Hey, we're going to go after restrictions on machine guns. Let's do it. And let's rely on the Second Amendment to do so. But in the meantime, this is simply reconciling some inconsistent areas of the law. Um, That doesn't give me much heartburn. Guy Relford, RelfordLaw.com on WIBC, WIBC.com. Weekends, The Gun Guy Show. Check him out there. Always appreciate it. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz.
So you know that I'm a believer in manufacturing and not just the very concept of manufacturing, but bringing manufacturing back to the United States. And this idea that when we talk about high paying jobs and we got to go after the biomed job, we got to go after the software job and the coding job. Not every job is meant for every person. And we leave far too much on the table when we say we don't want those jobs. Let's say, for example, in the state of Indiana. A massive mistake is made when Georgia or Arkansas or, or even California, with all the mistakes they make, would want to turn away manufacturing. It's a failure, I think, to recognize that the citizenry is made up of a whole bunch of different people with different wants, different ideas, and different skill sets. And some of those skill sets for manufacturing are extremely high, and some of those skill sets uh, for manufacturing are in different places. We need this. And in order to be a safe and secure nation, we need this. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Jay Timmons joins me right now. He is the president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. He's on tour, something called the Competing to Win Tour. And he was not too far away from me where I live in Indiana, touring some manufacturing facilities here in the state. Sir, it's it's good to have you with us. You've been out there with Senator Todd Young uh, of Indiana touring some facilities what are you looking at? What are you looking for? And what is this competing to win roadmap that you've put together and, and the National Association of Manufacturers has put together for candidates and elected officials? Well, thanks for, thanks for having me, Tony. It's good to be here. And yes, this is our competing to win tour uh, where we're highlighting uh, all of the great opportunities that are available in manufacturing today and also what opportunities we have to grow manufacturing, to your point, grow manufacturing right here in the United States through our public policies in Washington, D.C. Uh, Senator Young and I had an opportunity to tour INCOG, uh, which is a biopharmaceutical company that has um, located in, in Fishers, uh, and they are, they are growing and providing more opportunities for the residents in the area uh, to be a part of that uh, fantastic facility. What we're doing, Tony, is, is uh, highlighting. We started in, in Waukesha, Wisconsin yesterday. I'm, I'm really pleased to be here in, in the Indianapolis area today, um, heading to New Orleans uh, later this week. And the goal here is to highlight uh, what is necessary to grow manufacturing in the United States, uh, friend-shoring or near-shoring jobs uh, that are so vital to our economic success and our national security. So we look at things like uh, the, the competitive tax reforms that were, that were um, implemented or, or um, uh, enacted in 2017 and how that was rocket fuel for investment and job creation and wage growth here in this country and how we've coupled that with regulatory certainty in the last administration and infrastructure investment and the Chips and Science Act in this administration, the Chips and Science Act, by the way, which Todd Young uh, led to, to passage. And we just see unlimited opportunity here in the United States to keep growing. We've got a few things left to do which we can talk about, but we're really pleased with the trajectory that we're on. You talk about regulatory security, and certainly uh, you and I can have a detailed conversation uh, about the CHIPS Act and and whether or not we've now created a glut of, of chips, as some people have described. Have we fully engaged American security with with that act? But when you talk about regulation, something that we discuss often on the show, I said regulatory security. Did I not have the terminology right? 
regulatory certainty. Regulatory certainty. You're right. But hey, we need the security too. (laughs) That no, that is the term that you used. It's about the idea that businesses know how they can grow, so they can grow. Without that certainty, they can't. Is this a political issue? Is this an ideological issue? How do you convince elected leaders that businesses need to know the rules of the road in order to figure out how to actually go down it? Yeah, you're exactly right. So, you know, the regulatory environment, sadly, in Washington and even in the states, does tend to be a political pendulum. And so what we've seen is we saw in the last administration, we saw some uh, focus on making sure that our environmental regulations and our labor regulations, um, regulations coming out of the Security and Exchange Commission, uh, were established in a way that would, would not only ensure um, certainty for businesses all across the country, but also would be common sense and would be practical and achievable. Um, this administration is beginning to um, uh, promulgate regulations that, frankly, are not achievable in many instances. And, and before we've even hit the goalposts of, of other uh, regulations that have been put in place, and that's, that's pretty unfortunate. One of the things that we're advocating on this tour is permitting reform, which was a victim, a political victim, unfortunately, of the last Congress. But if we can actually get this done by Congress instead of the bureaucrats in the government, then we're going to have more certainty in the permitting process. We're going to be able to um, have ha- have a sense of, of understanding and certainty for businesses when they make these multi-billion dollar investments that they can actually get um, a spade in the ground and, and get a building built and get uh, uh, get a facility opened up. I worked for George Allen when he was governor of Virginia. I was his chief of staff. And one of his major focuses was uh, getting permitting reform. And at that time, we were able to uh, provide businesses with a sense of certainty that if they invested in our state at the time, um, they would know that they could open their doors at a, at a prescribed date. And in from very large facilities. That date was one year uh, after after the um, uh, project was announced, and sure enough, we got those doors open. You just have to have that focus by leaders at all levels of government. Talking to Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. He's the chairman of the board of the Manufacturing Institute. This is an interesting conversation. I would love for you to be able to give me a specific, because very often we discuss manufacturing in the ether without bringing down to how does it affect local communities. You mentioned Fishers, Indiana, which is a suburb northeast of Indianapolis, but there are lots of suburbs in lots of places all across the country. When you talk about permitting reform, how does it work? How does it get implemented? And then how does it affect the people of a Fishers, Indiana or name your city suburb USA? Well, kind of put it, <coughs> pardon me, to put it in the most basic terms, um, you know, we, we have goals and we have goal posts um, in our, let's just use environmental regulations, whether that's air or water. Um, uh, and, and when decisions are being made about whether to locate, where to locate a facility or perhaps a, an energy uh, production facility or telecommunications or utility um, or a road or a bridge, those decisions can be complicated, um, or I should say that the actual construction of those projects can be complicated by a lengthening of the process 
to evaluate all of all of the items that go around ensuring that we have clean air, clean water, um, clean soil, and all of those things are important. But oftentimes we we allow the bureaucracy to do kind of one step at a time instead of working together in a much more efficient manner to get things done more quickly. So let's just say a road that we're, we're thinking about uh, siting somewhere in Indiana, it could take five to 10 years to actually get the permit to build that road, which really doesn't make sense. It's hard for any community to plan around that. And it, it holds up progress for the people of that community that the road would be located in. So this is about speed, this is about efficiency, and this isn't political. It's just about how you create better, faster opportunities for better, faster turnarounds. Yeah, you said it exactly right. And it's not political. And the, and the, reason, <laughs> the reason I know that is we have Republicans and Democrats who are all saying, look, we've got to have this permitting reform. But they, it was a bipartisan bill that passed, for instance, infrastructure investment. And a lot of folks who, who supported that legislation are suddenly realizing, well, it's great that you have an investment for roads and bridges and, and um, telecommunications, but it, you can't build it if it's going to take five to 10 years to actually just get a permit to do it. So you see that bipartisan support. The Biden administration has indicated that, that they could support something in, these, in this area. Of course, they'll be back and forth about exactly what the Uh, the terms are of that legislation, but we really think it can get done this Congress. Before I let you go, and I know you're up against it, I appreciate you giving us your time. Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers. There's, of course, the question of actually finding people who do the manufacturing. With COVID, without COVID, how difficult has it been to find people to enter the manufacturing world? And what are you doing to try and draw those people to this profession? Yeah, so it is great to invest. It's great to create jobs, uh, but you're exactly right. If you don't have the people to do it, then uh, that really that really uh, hurt, hurts our competitive advantage in this country. And we want to outcompete China, right? We want to we want to make sure that China is not uh, doing better than us. And one of the ways that we're going to do that is to have all the folks necessary to get the jobs done in manufacturing. Today, we have about eight hundred and fifty thousand open jobs in this sector. Before the pandemic, that number was about 500,000. So it's not a new problem. At the very worst part of the pandemic, we still had 300,000 jobs that were open in the sector. So how are we dealing with that here at the National Association of Manufacturers and the Manufacturing Institute? We're trying to attract more women into the sector. We have a huge, huge gender gap. Only 29% of the manufacturing workforce is female. We're trying to make sure that folks who are uh, departing their military service understand all of the amazing job opportunities that are available in manufacturing. We have a program called Heroes Make America um, that is actually located on military bases throughout the country. We have, we have the FAME apprenticeship program that was formerly um, uh, owned and, and operated by Toyota. They gave it to our institute, and we're expanding that across the country. We have a program for second chance hiring. So those nonviolent offenders who have been a part of the criminal justice system and need a, a second start. Uh, we have opportunities in manufacturing. And then we have our Creators Wanted program to make sure that the next generation understands the myriad of opportunities in the sector. So many young people like my own children, they want to do something significant. They want to make a positive difference in the world. There is no better way to do that than in manufacturing because all roads 
start with manufacturing. You can't create a solution unless manufacturing is a part of that. And then lastly, I would say that we need to get serious about immigration reform in this country. And I'm talking about legal immigration. And we need to focus on things not only like border security or uh, finding a pathway to legalization for the dreamers, those people who have never known any country other than the United States, but also focus on the uh, on reform of H-1B and H-2A and H-2B uh, programs so that we can make sure that those who want to come to our country and contribute to our economy and contribute to the values of, of the United States have the opportunity to do that. But we can only do that through a legal system that uh, is is really uh, the focus, I think, of bipartisan See, you can't, you, you can't end an interview by talking about dreamers and visas regarding uh, student visas and others. I, I mean, that's a, that's a rough one right there. That's a whole different subject for a whole different day, Jay. My gosh. We have, that, there's, a lot, there's a lot to that, right? And we will get into that in the future. Jay Timmons, president and CEO of the National Association of Manufacturers, chairman of the board of the Manufacturing Institute. I appreciate you taking the time. You can learn more about him and about the organization at NAM, National Association of Manufacturers, nam.org. Uh, Jay Timmons, thank you. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz. So I actually thought this story was one of the best stories of the day. And, and I, I didn't get to it earlier, and I apologize. And I actually have a rule about not being in, like, the last segment of the show like this. If you want to – I actually did this in an interview once. And I got a little bit of heat for it, but pfft, I, I don't – I don't actually care. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Uh, find everything. TonyKatz.Locals.com. TonyKatz.Locals.com. Of course, Twitter at Tony Katz. Instagram, Tony Katz. Facebook. Again, forget those people. Um, I always get bothered when I hear radio hosts. They take, uh, it's the last segment of the show, right? Uh, they're in the third hour. It's the last segment. And it's like they're winding it up. Ah, well, it was a good show, everybody. We talked about this and we talked about that. Oh, we had some fun and games. I don't believe that that is the way to do things. Because to do that is to base yourself in the idea that people listen linearly. Meaning they start with the first hour, they end at the third hour, and they listen to all of it. That's not true. You're in and out of your car. Whether you're, You could be in construction. You could be in sales. You're doing things with the kids. You're running errands. You're in and you're out and you, and you miss things of course you do every single moment that i'm with you i believe it is my job to share a story in the same energy as when i started the damn day because you're at the same energy what is the idea that somehow i'm gonna wind it up i don't i think it's rude i think it's absolutely rude to do and and because of that i don't usually do like day ender kind of stuff i don't usually engage that kind of thing or some kind of sweet sappy story this is not sweet sappy this is freaking awesome i was reminded of the fact that today 43 years ago the united states defeated russia to go to the gold medal match in u.s in not u.s hockey in ice hockey it was the olympics it was 1980 and this happened Eleven seconds. The countdown going on right now. Morrow up to Schultz. Five seconds left in the game. 
Now, do you believe in miracles is one of the greatest calls in sports history. There are there are very few things that you can mention in reference to that, uh, to, to the idea of, of a call that even comes close. That's how good Al Michaels, Do You Believe in Miracles is. That's not the part I want to share. The part I want to share is next. What happened after he made that call as people are watching this on TV? Listen. That cheering goes on on televisions across America for a minute. I thought it was only 40 seconds. It's 60 seconds of this. The Russians, the Soviets are standing slumped over their hockey sticks, dejected. These kids that are the U.S. hockey national team screaming and yelling and jumping on each other and hugging the crowd out of its mind. And all of that for a semifinal. They had to beat Finland in the finals to win the gold medal. Incredible story. 43 years ago. Enjoy that. I'm Tony Katz. Tomorrow, everyone. Take care. Take care.